So this morning we come to the end of our time in Hosea as we've begun our study this summer in the Minor Prophets. And we've noticed so far that the key uh, insight, the key reality that we're wanting to interact with in Hosea is that it's a parable of God's steadfast covenant love, a love that at its core has an againness to it. And as we saw this morning, a love that's made manifest in this cheek-to-cheekness that God desires with his people. But let's keep it real for a minute. I mean, that's nice religious rhetoric. And um, it's hopeful, it is. It's, It's a beautiful picture, and it's hopeful, and I don't mean in any way to suggest that it's not true. But it is the kind of thing that if we don't bring to it some sort of reality, it just kind of sits in some idealistic place and we don't really interact with it. So here's the reality against which this is a challenge. Just in the 20th century, over 108 million people were killed in wars. Just in the 20th century. The scholarly a kind of consensus about how many have been killed in wars in all of humanity is somewhere between 150 million and a billion. Of human beings who killed each other for some reason that they could rationalize in their head, right? I I have a brother who we lost in Vietnam when I was a young teenager. So this is not like, you know, idealistic to me. This is real life stuff. How is a Jew, a thoughtful, sincere, gentle Jew, supposed to believe in God after the Holocaust? How do you understand cheek-to-cheekness after the Holocaust? And how is a black Christian supposed to believe in cheek-to-cheekness after this week in Charleston? This is the actual real human dilemma that plays out in contrast with this amazing rhetoric that we read. And so I just want to stop this morning. It's not often that I, you know, comment deeply or widely on sort of social things, but I feel like this morning if we're not keeping it real if we don't. Well, I, I'm, I don't know who's competent to these things. Um, I'm certainly not, so I'm, I'm borrowing here this morning from really smart people like um, C.S. Lewis and Dallas Willard and Peter Kreeft, and you know, we don't have time to do a full-blown sort of theology of suffering, but let's at least just try to think these thoughts. We wouldn't wonder why these things happen if we didn't believe that there really is a God who is conscious of human activity, right? If you didn't believe there was a God who saw what happened in Charleston, you wouldn't ask why. It's only because you believe there is a God who is conscious of you and humanity and what's going on that we wonder why. The the occurrence of evil is only confusing and disturbing because we think there's a loving and powerful God who should prevent it, right? That's what makes it confusing. So here's the best best insight I can give you. That in resolving this dilemma, the first step is to affirm that a universe which permits the development of moral character is better than any other alternative. Now, I know that's a a lot for a Sunday morning, so let me say it again. (laughs) A universe created and designed by God that permits and allows for moral development 
is you have to just believe, if you're going to trust in God, that that's in His wisdom, that's better than any other option that was available to Him. But this is the actual root of the confusion because as soon as you say allows for moral development, it means it allows for that crazy kid. But listen to me, it also allows for the development of Mother Teresa. It allows for the development, I can't think of his name now, that famous Catholic priest who went to Hawaii to minister to lepers when no one else in the world would. Yeah, Father Damien, who, who himself, thank you very much, who of himself. I'm always counting on a crowd to know the answer when I don't, so I'm good. Anybody who knows me knows I love borrowing other people's brains. You know, it allows for the development, not just of these monsters, but it allows for the development of beauty. And, and it just, it gets down to a, a trusting. Do we trust that this God who brings his people cheek to cheek is the God who knows that a, a world that was only, let's say, plants and minerals, follow me here, a world that was only plants and minerals is less, has less intrinsic worth than a world that involves human beings who are invited to become into the image of God. Are you tracking with me here? This is the basic place where we have to land. But moral development of personhood is possible only in a world of genuine freedom. And this is what Lewis has written so much about, and Willard and others. That, that the kind of world that allows for development also has to allow for these horrendous moral crimes to be permitted. And, and they're permitted by God, and this is what brings up all the confusion. But God himself never approves of them. He never actualizes them in the same way that he actualized Abraham. Are you tracking with me here? Or actualized Moses. He never actualizes them or requires them. They're not required to fulfill his purposes. But nurturing moral perfection within a suitable world and not allowing wrongdoing is impossible. This is very simple to see. Just think of it this way. If a child is never permitted to do wrong, it will never become capable of developing a character or nature that resolutely chooses the good. Good persons must live in a world where evil is a genuine choice. So at work, when you're sitting around a conference table, Lying is a genuine choice. Fudging the facts on a report out of fear of your boss, that's a genuine choice. And a world that produces the kind of people who can be God's cooperative friends has to emerge out of the world in which that is a choice or this is not God's intended plan. So then let's just stop and wonder for a moment what lies behind human evil? And again, this is, it's very simple, but it's profound. Nearly all evil doing is done under the guise of necessity. Black people are taking over the world. They're raping our women. They must stop. Therefore, I must murder you. Because my will not only has to be done, listen to this. My will not only has to be done, but I have to make sure it happens. That underlies all evil. That underlies telling your spouse to F off. This is what underlines all human evil, is the necessity to win that argument. 
I feel unsafe, so I must secure myself. I'm not living in this sort of cheek-to-cheek reality in which I'm fundamentally in this oneness that Beth described, and in that utter solidarity, I am always safe. But when one's not living there, that gives rise to a life of insecure necessity. And so necessity then becomes the rationale to bring about my aims and whatever it takes. But if by contrast, we can come to rely on God for the achievement of my aims, I'm safe in this setting, therefore I don't have to fudge the facts at work, I don't have to ensure my aims, I can rely upon someone else, that fundamental reality, that fundamental reliance, I'm sorry, gives then, you know, a, a soil out of which a whole different kind of human being can grow. And when we begin to rely on God in this way, then we can just simply stop doing what we know to be wrong. And we can stand against evil in our world, unconcerned about what may happen to me. But on what basis would someone do that? That just sounds flat crazy. On what basis would someone become that free, that secure, that open, uh, having that kind of capacity of, of otherliness and love? On what basis? Well, look at your text in Hosea. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and I called him out of Egypt. And I led him with cords of kindness and with ties of love. Like one who lives a little child to the cheek, I bent down to feed him. Again, that's beautiful, right? I mean, it's unspeakably beautiful. But the reality is this divine human interaction has been a deep struggle and a, and a retching ordeal for, as you look in the next paragraph or so, the more they were called, the more they went away from me, determined to turn away from me. They sacrificed to the Baals. They didn't realize who healed them. And so now we're invited to stop and ask, okay, God, ball's in your court. You called, you rescued, you delivered, you made us your people, you fed us, you took care of us all through the wilderness journey. We reacted like that, ball's in your court. So what happens? It produces a loneliness in the heart of God. Does that strike you as interesting? A loneliness in the heart of God. Not the loneliness of absence or presence, because God being omniscient can fix that. So not the way we might think of loneliness when someone's absent, but what about the loneliness you feel in a friendship when you think something's wrong? You know that deep loneliness, maybe in a marriage, maybe on a sports team or in a musical you know, group or something. You know, just think of a time where you're actually present, but simultaneously to that is a very deep loneliness and anguish of estrangement, of painful, unreciprocated, vulnerable love. Say that again. Painful unreciprocated, vulnerable love. That's what God does when the ball's in his court. He answers the question, how can I give you up, Israel? 
My heart is changed within me. All my compassion is aroused. And this is a very deep and profound revelation of the inner depths of the intense love of God. And it's from this place that comes the grace that funds the againness that we've been talking about of God's love. It's what funds him ever calling out, not just to Israel and not just to the ancient church, but to you and I in 2015 saying, return Israel to the Lord your God for your sins have been your downfall. So now I want to help us think about this for a moment because this gets right to the issue of this last part of Hosea. And so I just want you to, I mean, again, that's one of those sentences that, okay, you know, whatever. So, but let's take it apart a bit. Who's Israel? What does sin mean? From what have they fallen? What would it mean to return? All right, let's just, let's just look at this for a little bit. So who's Israel? When God says, return Israel, I mean, I know what happens for most of us. We picture the modern day political state. We do. It's, I'm not saying we're bad or stupid. We just do. You say the word Israel, most people are going to think of a little piece of land, you know, in the Mediterranean. Well, it's not what's in view here. It's not the modern nation state that's in view. This is God's chosen people. This is the people from whom he feels estranged. This is the source of the loneliness. And so when he says, return Israel, he's, this is a very relational idea. And then he says, your sins have been your downfall. Well, what does sin mean? I mean, I can guarantee you they weren't smoking dope. And I can guarantee you they weren't looking at bad things on the internet. And they weren't spending too much money at the mall. So what were they doing? What does God mean when he says, your sins have been your downfall? And it's this, and, and this is what I'm so hoping and praying as I and Todd and whoever else teaches throughout this summer, um, that, that the Holy Spirit gently does in our midst, and that is to remind us of the intentionality behind our callings. That's what they were sinning about. Rather than loving each other and serving the world, they were hating each other and exploiting the poor or exploiting those who God had made them to be his servants for. That was their sin. Their sin did not have to do with what you think of as mere moralisms. It was a fundamental missing of God's intention for them. And from what then have they fallen? He says they've fallen. From what have they fallen? Well, this gets at you know, what the doctrine of election, which simply means I called you out of Egypt to be my people, and you were to be kind of the cosmic first responders. You notice the fire trucks that went by. This is actually a beautiful imagery of what God intended for Israel. You were to be my cosmic first responders. And you've fallen away from that. You're, you're no longer attuned to me and attuned to what's real in your world. And I don't even mean so much here that, you know, you have to become the next head of world vision or, you know, you have to start some great new international ministry like Compassion. I don't mean that. I'm, and we're going to talk about this more later this morning, but what about just your ordinary everyday life? You're getting up, walking around, going to work life. What if that became the grounds, the soil in which you learn both to notice God and to notice the other? And then we just place ourselves in that space as God's people. 
So what would it have meant then for them to return? Well, the text gives us a hint when it asks them to maintain love and justice. See, God doesn't say, you know, stop these kind of lists of morals. He says what's fundamental to returning to me and being my people is helping me maintain love and justice in this project in which hatred and injustice is possible and frequent. Frequent in our own families. Here's an interesting thought for a Sunday morning. Give at least as much attention to your role in evil in the world as you give to why God permits it. What if each of us just became the kind of people for whom evil's not an option? We're just not that sort of person. And what if that grew in the world? What if like a little mustard seed, tracking with me here? What if like little, a little mustard seed, your intention to be a person of good and not of evil became a huge flowering plant in which all the rest of the world could derive life, shade and food? and a place to be secure. That's the vision here. This is what God is calling them to, to return. And when we get to our gospel reading, we're made known, it's made known to us that Jesus is, of course, the fulfillment of all this. I don't know if you've ever had this thought, but try it on for size, please. That God, that, excuse me, Jesus is Israel as God intended. This is the picture of what I meant for my people. Jesus fulfills all the promises to Israel, and Jesus fulfills all the calling of Israel. He is Israel as God intended. So when a leper comes to him, an outcast of society who has an incurable disease, what does the text say of Jesus? Moved with pity. She right back to that cheek-to-cheek -cheek thing. How can I turn away from you, Israel. So Jesus looks at this person who in New Testament times, um, leprosy was at least a symbol of um, not having the favor of God on your life. It was like a symbol of being in a bad spiritual state. Now, of course, we know a lot more about skin diseases now, and I'm not saying everybody held that view, but it was a very common view, much the way we thought of AIDS in the 80s. Very much the same. So Jesus looks at this outcast who the vast majority of society would have assumed that he was a spiritual reprobate. And Jesus looks at him and being Israel as God intended is moved with pity. He stretched out his hands and touches him and says to him these magical words, I do desire. Remember the leper said, Lord, if you will, if you want to, if you desire, the question here was not about capacity. It wasn't, the question wasn't if you can. The question was, are you a good God? How do I understand the goodness of God covered with these sores and hated by everybody? There's no question of if you will unless you assume capacity. Are you tracking with me here? So the question isn't God can you, the question is something like why? And you see the heart of God. When, and so when people ask, you know, what is God's reaction to evil and to suffering and injustice? He's moved with pity. 
He's moved with compassion. This thing that is cheek to cheek in him is aroused and he wants to bring it to the world. But, but the world that's contrary to him doesn't feel that as his generous, gentle love. It feels it as antagonism and God bringing his justice in a place that they don't necessarily want it to be. And this is that againness of, of God's love that we see in Jesus as he moves out and touches him. So let's finish with this thought. This unchanging againness that Todd and I have put before you those last three weeks, this is what gets in, us in on God's story too. As out of your own personal Egypt, God called you. I, I know what mine was. I don't know what yours is. And he led you with cords of human kindness and with ties of love. And he's lifted you as a little child to his cheek and bent down to feed you. So if we, if we think about this now, not in terms of historic Israel and not in terms of a, a kind of a theology of suffering that we've talked about this morning, but what if we just stop now and think about this in terms of our own formation? And I would ask you just right now, begin to remember your own moment of salvation. Remember how amazing it felt that God chose you. Call to mind the joy of forgiveness. I mean, I'd done a lot of bad stuff. And remember those first moments of amazement when you were aware that he cared for you. And how using the imagery of this passage, how he walked with you in your first step, your little hand in his big, powerful hand. Those first times you could see God's intervention when you prayed. But wanting independence, feeling the necessity to secure ourselves, it begins to give a rationale to give ourselves to other gods or other powers. As we just sang, prone to wander, Lord, I feel it, prone to leave the God I love. And so obedience then becomes hard, and each step away from God becomes increasingly easier. Our conscience loses its ability to notice God and goodness. We lose touch of the fact that our lives may be grieving the Holy Spirit. And the habits formed by our disordered desires and the deceitfulness of sin make our hearts hard. Balls in your court, God. And now comes his againness, his steadfast covenant love that draws us away from disordered desires draws us away from wrong attachments and brings us back to him cheek to cheek. So in this quiet moment, I want to invite you to bow your head and close your eyes and see if in this moment you can begin again to hear your calling. And maybe in a non-judgmental, non-neurotic way, just begin to examine. Uh, maybe picture a path that represents your calling, and then just begin to notice the real path that you might be walking on. And wherever necessary, just hear the Lord say, return.
My cheek is always available. I'm always willing to bend down to feed you and tend you and care for you. Return to loving God. Return to noticing and loving your neighbor.